we are in our Storyline of the Bible series. Um, I, uh, as I look across the room, most of you are very well uh, aware of that. And I, I will say this, I think we're probably in the part that if I was to poll the audience, if I was to pass out a, a, a trivia or a, a quiz and ask you questions about, um, the, especially the Old Testament, like you probably would have done fairly well until like getting where we are now and from here until Jesus is born. Like the kings, the prophets, the kingdoms divided, like this part um, all the way into when you get to Matthew. For many of us can get a little fuzzy. Now, some of you, you may be still pretty on point with that, but I know for me, this is the part that gets a little muddied and muddled as to like which prophet belongs to which kingdom and which king and who's good kings, bad kings. And I've been trying to map all of that out. But before we get there, we got a magnificent uh, event that has occurred um, in the history that is part of the storyline and it is the building of the, um, Solomon's temple. So that's what we're gonna look at um, this morning. Solomon, the, the temple has just been built. And what we're gonna see starting here from the reading in the text is we're gonna see Solomon's uh, prayer of dedication to the temple. And so it's a little bit of a lengthy text, but I wanted you to kind of get a full picture of what's happening as well as um, it shows us, especially the purpose of the temple. So 2 Chronicles chapter 6, we'll start in verse number 12. Get a drink of water. You there? All right. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands. Solomon had made a bronze platform five cubits long, five cubits wide, and three cubits high and had set, in, set it in the court and he stood on it. Then he knelt on his knees in the presence of, of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven and said, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven or on earth, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all of their heart, who have kept with, who have kept with your servant David, my father, what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand. You have fulfilled it to this day. Now, therefore, O Lord God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, what you have promised him, saying, you shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel, if only your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk in my law as you have walked before me. Now, therefore, O Lord God of Israel, let your word be confirmed, which you have spoken to your servant David. But God but will God indeed dwell with man on earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. Yet I have regarded to the prayer of your servant and to his plea. O Lord, my God, listen to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you, that your eyes may be open day and night toward this house, the place where you have promised to set your name, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place and listen to the pleas of your servant and of your people Israel. And when they pray toward this place and listen from heaven, your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. If a man strikes his neighbor and is made to take an oath and comes and swears his oath before your altar in this house, then hear from heaven and act and judge your servants, repaying the guilty by bringing his conduct on his own head and vindicating the righteous by rewarding him according to his righteousness. If your people Israel are defeated before the enemy because they have sinned, because you 
against, have sinned against you and they turn again and acknowledge your name and pray and plead with you in this house, then hear from heaven and forgive the sins of your people Israel and bring them again to your land that you, that you gave to them and to their fathers. When heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, if they pray toward this place and acknowledge your name and turn from their sin when you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants and your people Israel when you teach them the good way in which, they are, in which they should walk and grant rain upon your land, which you have given to your people as an inheritance, if there is famine in the land, if there is pestilence or blight or mildew or locusts or murder hornets or dust storms or coronavirus or caterpillar, if their enemy besieged them in, in, in the land at their gate, whatever plague, whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by any man or by all of your people Israel, each knowing his own affliction and his own sorrow and stretching out his hand toward this house, then hear from heaven your dwelling place and forgive and render to each whose heart you know according to all his ways for you, you will only know the hearts of the children of mankind, that they may fear you and walk in your ways all the days that they may live in the land that you have gave to our fathers. Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for the sake of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm, when he comes and he prays toward this house, hear from heaven your dwelling place and do according to all uh, for which the foreigner calls to you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name. May, I'm sorry, all the peoples may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel that, and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. If your people go out to battle against their enemies by whatever way you shall send them, and they, pray to, and they pray to you toward the city that you have chosen and the house that I have built for your name. Then hear from heaven their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause if they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin. And you are angry with them and give them to an enemy so that they are carried away captive to a land far or near. Yet if they turn their heart in the land, to which they have been carried captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captivity saying, we have sinned and we have acted perversely and wickedly. If they repent with all of their mind and with all of their heart in the land of their captivity, which they were carried captive and pray toward the land, which you gave to their fathers, the city you have chosen and the house that I have built for your name, then hear from heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their pleas and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you. Now, oh my God, let your eyes be open and your ears attentive to the prayer of this place. And now arise, O oh Lord God, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests, O Lord God, be clothed with salvation. Let your saints rejoice in goodness. O Lord God, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. Remember your steadfast love for David, your servant. And as soon as Solomon had finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the 
temple and the priest could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house when all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple. They bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped. They gave thanks to the Lord saying, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you've saw fit in a moment in time to preserve this occasion, the dedication of the first temple, Solomon's temple, that you preserve these words under your, that were inspired by your servant Solomon and you've given to them to us today. Father, as we think about the past and we think about this event and as we think about the past in the person and the work of Jesus and we think about the present and as we think about the future, may it have the same effect, the effect that fell upon the people as your glory came down, that they fell upon their faces and they worshiped you and they gave thanks to you and they cried out to you. They declared that you were good and that your steadfast love endures forever. As we leave this place today, may we leave with that truth held tight in our hearts and upon our lips that God, no matter what, you are good and your steadfast love endures forever. Our circumstances do not dictate that. Current events do not dictate that. A bloody cross, an empty tomb, an occupied throne, they dictate that. And may that be the greatest truth. In your name we pray, amen. Well, thank you. I would say you'd be seated, but you're seated. I've got six minutes left in my sermon, so let's unpack this. No, maybe a little long. I know that was lengthy, but it was such a good text that we needed to get through it. A couple of things as we approach the text and as we think about Solomon's temple, we're gonna back up a little bit, like a backup, like like seven years, and we're gonna talk about the temple, what it looked like, how it was built. And this will be kind of the questions that we're gonna query of the text. It's the same questions that you were taught in probably elementary school or grade school to ask of a text or to ask as you're interviewing. It's just a simple question question of the the what, when, where, and why. So what is it? Um, When was it built? Where was it built? And then lastly, the why was it built? And then we're going to apply it to Christ and then to our own lives. And so the first one seems so simple, but um, it's the one of most importance possibly. It's the what question, what was built? And the answer to that is the obvious answer of a temple. Now know this about the temple. First of all, it was a magnificent place. But as we said um, two weeks ago, and I, maybe even again, no, we said it last week, that Solomon, um, that God had made Solomon a very, 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 very wealthy man, and also a very wise man, but he was very wealthy as well. In fact, we could probably say this, he's probably the wealthiest individual to ever live on this earth would have been Solomon. And the, and the temple that he builds for God will reflect that wealth. And in fact, as uh, Adam puts up a couple of images, you'll see here kind of what the, the temple looked like on the exterior of it. It was built of stone. So these would have been carved, hewn stone uh, blocks that would have been made in a quarry. Now, Solomon was so detailed even that he told the the craftsmen that are making the rocks, look, I want you to craft them. It's basically almost like precast, if you will. Make them in the quarry and then bring them in in blocks. I don't want a bunch of hammering and chiseling and jackhammering and all that stuff happening on Temple Mount. This is a holy site. Now, certainly they're going to have to do a little bit of that work, but the brunt of the work will be done in the quarry. So from the exterior, it's going to be mostly stone. 
On the interior, if you could kind of see through the gold, it would have been mostly uh, actually wood, cedar wood. So even those of you that like have a cedar closet, like think of the aromatic, think of the smell of cedar. And that's the way it would have been. It would have been cedar timbers as a floor and also for a cedar, also for a roof. And then it would have been a cedar planking on the floor and cedar planking down the sides. And then he had craftsmen come in and they would carve on the cedar planking on the sides. They did carved images. The images would depict, depicted a garden scene. And then it was all poured over in either gold or silver. Think about this. 4,000 tons of gold and 40,000 tons of silver. Not to mention all of the bronze that would be used. So you got the bronze that will be used for the, the sacrifice out front for the altar that was made there. And then you have the, what's called the sea, which is a, a basin of bronze that's built there for the um, purification ceremonies. So all of that kind of being built together that one person's tried to put pencil and paper and pen to it and came up with this as a price. If you were to build Solomon's temple as it was in that day, it would cost 160 trillion, that's with a T, trillion dollars to make. $160 trillion. A fifth of all of the gold that it's ever been mined was used in that temple to build it. But listen, the gold, the silver, all of those things isn't what makes the temple so magnificent. That makes the the temple so magnificent and so beautiful is the purpose for the temple It is the dwelling place of God. It is that the glory of God came and filled the the temple. It's the manifest presence of the Lord, the God dwelling with his people. That's what makes it so special. That as you think about like the what, and you say, well, what is it? And you answer and rightly answer, you would say, it's a temple. And as you think about a temple, like pictures like this, they're gonna be conjured up in your mind, but there's another name for the temple. And that name is, it's also called a house. In fact, interchangeably. In fact, we even get that picture as Solomon's dedication. We can go all the way back into 1 Samuel whenever David is the first one who says, hey God, I wanna build you a, I wanna build you a house. I wanna build you a temple. And what David says is, I have a palace to live in, but God, you don't have a palace to kind of live in. I've got a place to dwell in, but God, you don't have a place to dwell in. And so I wanna make for you a house. Now, The distinction is important that it's not just a temple, but it's also a house. Because when you think of a temple, thoughts will be conjured up in your mind. But when you think of a house, something different may come come into your mind. The temple, when you think of temple, it's about what people might do there. It's what you might do. It's what worshipers are gonna do. They're gonna worship, they're gonna sing, they're gonna offer sacrifices, they're gonna pray, they're gonna do all of those things. And that is true of the temple. But those things are only important because the temple isn't just a temple, but it's also a house. It's also a dwelling. That what's most important about the temple is that it's first a house. It is a house and it is about what God will do in that house, that God will dwell with his people. And that is what's of first importance. The temple is first before it's any of those things for us horizontally, for us as humans, it is first this. It is, it is the dwelling place of the Lord among his people. 
that that's foundational to our theology. It's a foundational truth as to who God is, that God is the creator, but God has created in such a way that he's not just created and then God is somewhere in a distance, you know, Bette Midler's song. He's not just standing out of a distance. He hasn't just spun up the earth like someone would, like a kid would, would wind up a toy and then let it go as one would wind up a clock, but it's a God who who desires and longs to dwell with his people, to dwell in the midst of the pinnacle of his creation. You go all the way back to Genesis and you see this. You see God, the opening pages of Genesis, again, the storyline of the Bible, what we see here happening in Second Chronicles, we can go all the way back to Genesis and we'll do that and we'll go all the way forward to Revelation 21. Why? Because God is telling one story. The Bible is 66 books, but every book, every story, every thing in it, Every person is telling one story, the culmination of who Jesus is and what Jesus is doing as he gathers God's people. In Genesis, God creates. He creates the heavens and the earth. And then God creates the first temple, the Garden of Eden. And that's what the Garden of Eden really was. It was God's creation, God making his temple and putting his people there under his rule. We see that even in the text today, a place where people could commune with God where they could dwell with God. We see that. And then what happens in that and what happens following after Genesis 1 is you see that man falls. We fall into sin. We sin against God. And what God does is he, God brings punishment to man. And the, the pinnacle, the picture of the, of the consequences of our sin is separation between God and us that God exiles man from God's temple, from God's presence. He, he separates that. And there's reminders of that. There's reminders of Eden and there's reminders of the fall throughout, the, throughout the, the picture of the temple, throughout the temple itself. Remember I said they had them come in and they, they carved on the wood and then covered over in gold. And so the, the gold would have been recessed. They carved into it, what? A garden scene. Why? Because of the garden Eden. There'll be these lampstands that we filled up into the, into the, into the um, holy place. That's what it's called. Into the holy place to illuminate it. And even in, in that, we see that God is a God who in creation, he separates the darkness from the light and he fills it with light. But these lampstands aren't just single lamps with single candles on them, but they're menorahs. They look like trees. It's almost as if God is putting golden trees filled with light inside of his, inside of his temple. It's to take us back to the, to the picture of the, of the garden, the first temple. But not only is there pictures of Eden pre-fall, there's also pictures of Eden post-fall in, in the temple. The temple will um, be kind of drawn out if you could think of it like as an aerial view and look at it with x-ray vision, if you would. It could kind of be like concentric rectangles. And so we'll start with the most outside rectangle that would have still been the, the, the grounds, the temple mount area. That area, is called, um, that area is called the court of the Gentiles. And this would have included a, a porch or a portico that would have gone all the way around the temple. And so that's the area where the, where the altar is, the place where the, the sea, the bronze sea is located as well. The next, inside the next circle, which would be inside of the, the temple proper. So you go through the two huge bronze pillars on each side. And as you enter into, that would have been called the holy place. That's where the menorahs and the candles were. And then if you could go all the way back and you think about the most inmost of the concentric circles, the inside, I mean, re rectangles, so inside rectangle would have been the most holy place, the place where only the high priest could go and to be on one day of the year. 
Now, as I said, there's reminders of Eden pre-fall, and there's also reminders of Eden post-fall in this. As you enter into the holy place, looking toward the most holy place, there would have been a giant veil and a giant curtain there, almost as a declaration that there's separation between the real presence of God. That's where the Shekinah glory, that's where the presence, manifest presence of God would dwell. But between that and towards the people, there's a, there's a veil there now, a separation. That's a picture of that. If you were to go inside the temple and you were to open up the veil and peek your head through, the first thing you would have seen is you would have seen two giant cherubim. Solomon had these cherubim, again, under the instruction and inspiration of God. He had cherubim carved out of olive wood and then covered in gold. Cherubim are angelic winged creatures that must look frightening on some level because every time anyone in the Bible sees a cherubim, they're scared out of their wits. They basically wet themselves as they see that. And in fact, cherubim are what God puts to guard the entrance of the first temple, the Garden of Eden. God puts cherubim there with flaming swords to guard the entrance in. And now what you have as you enter into the presence of God, you've got these cherubim there. Whenever Isaiah in Isaiah 6, whenever he sees the vision of the throne room of God, what's inside there? Cherubim. What's Isaiah's response? It's fear and trembling. Woe is me for I'm a man of unclean lips. He understands that he's a sinful person as he enters in. The same thing is true here. There are these cherubim. And when we say that this is so important, that God's manifest presence is dwelling among his people, when we say that this is God's dwelling place, God's house, it doesn't in any way mean that you can somehow contain God. I mean, we understand and we know, again, as a theological um, understanding, as a basis, as a foundational understanding of who God is, that God is omnipresent. He can't be contained. God is everywhere. But what Solomon declares, even, I mean, sorry, Solomon even declares this in his prayer of dedication in the text, in verse number 18. But will God indeed dwell with man on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest earth and the highest heaven cannot even contain you. Heaven can't even contain you. You spill out and you are everywhere is what he's saying, much less this small house that I have built. Verse number 20, that your eyes may be open day and night toward this place, the place where you have promised to set your name. Now that's important. You've set your name here. But then you, you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place. The temple will be a symbol of God's presence among his people. That's the point. It's a point where the manifest presence of the Lord will dwell among his people. That's, where, that's what this temple is all about. So now we look at the what. It's a temple and it's a house. Talk about some of the details. Let's talk about when. When was it built? Well, 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 1 tells us that it is built 480 years after the Exodus. 480 years have transpired since, since the Israelites left out of Egypt on their way towards the promised land. Now that's important because not only does that give us a timeline, which we can kind of you know, trace back how many years have transpired from Exodus now into 2 Chronicles, not only does it give us that, but it also reminds us that the, the most defining moment for the children of Israel was the Exodus, that's the defining moment. That's the high, that's the kind of the high mark. That's the defining moment of the relationship between God and his people. But in the Exodus, what God is declaring is, God is declaring that I am a God who rescues and a God who redeems, God who saves. And who are you? You are the rescued. 
You are the redeemed. You are the ransomed people that I've set free and called you out of slavery and called you to yourselves. And so again, he hearkens back to that moment for you to remember, remember who I am and remember who you are. Four years into Solomon's reign as king is whenever he begins to construct the the temple. It would take him roughly seven to eight years to build the temple. Now, this temple that you saw, uh, saw a picture of, and I apologize, it was a, a bad picture. Only thing they had back in those days was Polaroid cameras, and it's hard to get a Polaroid uploaded onto the internet. We had to do the best we were doing. So the pictures are a little rough there. But that temple that you saw a picture of was not, is not the same temple that Jesus will see. Jesus will never visit that. The incarnated Jesus will never visit that temple. That's not the temple that he cleanses. That's not the temple that he goes in and teaches. That's not any of that, that this temple that Solomon builds, it will only stand for about 375 years. It will be built roughly in 960 to 966 BC, somewhere around there. It will stand for 375 years. And then in 586 and 587 and We'll talk more about that. The Babylonians are gonna lay siege to the city of Jerusalem. They're gonna destroy the southern kingdom of Israel. And they are going to uh, lay to waste the temple that Solomon built. Later on, Herod, um, later on it will be rebuilt. Um, That's the books of Nehemiah and Ezra. We'll talk about that as Jerusalem is repopulated. They're called out of exile. Later on in about 20 BC, Herod the Great, not even the same Herod that, that was around when Jesus was around, but Herod the Great, he will rebuild that temple and that'll be the temple that Jesus sees. And in fact, he'll build it much larger. The temple that Jesus visits is, a, is, is by far much larger. That this temple that Solomon is building really isn't all that big. In fact, just to give you an idea how big it is, it is 30 feet wide by 90 feet deep. Now it was tall, it's about four and a half stories tall. But just for a picture, the inside of the, the dome picture here, that's about 30 feet. And 90 feet is from about that wall a little bit past that wall. So the inside dimensions would have been roughly about the size of our worship center here. So that kind of gives you a, a picture. But remember that picture, it's, well, it's not all that big, but remember this as well. Where it was built is important. I said this um, in the past and may say it again, but one scholar has said that God, it's almost as if God is putting Israel's theology on the map, that geography and even topography matters in the Bible, that the places and the names of the places and the changing of the names of the places, that all of that really matters. Now, you could take that too, too far in understanding, but here what's most important is, uh, is, is, the, is important, is the place that the temple is built on Mount Moriah. It's built in Jerusalem. Jerusalem's, uh, David will change the name of Jerusalem to Zion, which all of the Psalms talk about Zion. It's talking about the city of Jerusalem. We, used, we sing a hymn some about Zion and we're marching on to Zion. Now we're not marching on to Jerusalem, but Zion is also a picture of heaven. It's where God dwells. It's the presence of God. That is Zion. And that's where the temple is, but it's in a specific location and it's on Mount Moriah. Now, Those of you that have been following along in the storyline of the Bible, those of you that have been listening to Pastor Sean's class or Dee's class when we were in the beginning class in Genesis, do you remember what occurred in Genesis on Mount Moriah? A huge event happened there. Mount Moriah is where God tells Abraham to take Isaac and take him up on Mount Moriah to sacrifice him. 
Now, the story, and we talked about this when we talked about the sacrifice of, of uh, Abraham, sacrifice and Isaac, it's not just, what God is teaching us there isn't just Abraham's faith. It's not just a, a declaration of a test of Abraham's faith and Abraham is found to be faithful, although that's true, but what's also pictured in there is what God is teaching us is that God will offer a substitute in the place of Isaac. That's what's happening there. That right as, as Abraham pulls out the knife about to bring it down upon his son, the Lord will stop him and then God will provide a ram in the thicket. And then that will be the substitutionary um, sacrifice that is given in the place of Isaac. And we need to think about that when we think about the temple. What's occurring there on the temple? Substitutionary sacrifice is happening there all the time. In fact, if we would have kept reading in our text and we could have read on if we, if we wanted to, what it says, even on this day, the day of the dedication, listen to this, Solomon will offer as a substitutionary sacrifice as either a burnt offering or a blood offering, he will offer up 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep to be sacrificed. What's that a picture of? What's it a reminder of? Well, it's also, I think, a reminder of the insufficiency of, the, of an animal sacrifice. Ultimately, Mount Moriah, ultimately what's happening here, ultimately the temple, what it's pointing to is Christ who is, who, who is the very manifest presence of God for he is God will come and he will sacrifice himself right outside of this temple mount. Not only does geography matter, but topography matters. It's on top of a mountain. You ascend up to the temple, up to Jerusalem. If you think about modern day pictures of old Jerusalem, even right now, think about the old part of Jerusalem, there's a, there's a building that would be you know, easy probably in your mind, in your image. It's a huge domed building, much like the, the capital is domed. I mean, it's a dome, I think, made of brass and it's a, called the Dome of the Rock. You remember that iconic picture because of it's it you know of all the bling right you, that you, it's hard not to miss it. But the other thing you remember is because it's up on a hill. That dome of the rock is located on Mount Moriah on Temple Mount. It's a is it now an Islamic? It is an Islamic temple that was built there, but that is the location. Now I say that also to, as you think about this as you as you ascend up to the temple, you got to think about the the Israelites not living in in Jerusalem being scattered out. And then there would be these festivals or certain ceremonial festivals that they would have where all of the able-bodied Israelites, all of the Jewish folks would come back into Jerusalem. They would come to, 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 to the temple. That's where they're going. That's the epicenter. And as they're traveling into Jerusalem, they're, they're ascending up. In fact, if you look at the Psalms, or Psalms could be, uh, it's one book of the Bible, it can be broken down into several different books. There's a whole section of Psalms from Psalm uh, 120 to Psalm 134 that are called the Psalms of Ascent. The Psalms as you ascend, what they are, they were Psalms to be sung, Psalms to be recited as the pilgrim is traveling to Jerusalem to go to the temple. And as you're on the way, you're, you're seeing it. You're seeing the, the beauty of it and the splendor of it. You're seeing it, at, you know, Zion, you're traveling upward. And I think that the picture there uh, shouldn't be lost on us even as New Testament saints. It's the truth that the path and the way to godliness, the way to knowing God is it's a, it's a constant climb. 
Now you've got Miley Cyrus stuck in your head. No, it's, you know, it is and it isn't. It is about the climb. It's about the climb upward as we're, as we're moving. I just gotta make sure you're on your toes. We wouldn't want anybody to, to fall asleep, certainly. And so as you're climbing upward, as you're, as you're moving upward, it is this climb. In fact, the Apostle Paul will write in Colossians that we are to set our minds on the things that are above. He says, not on the things that are on this earth. I think it's a good word for us. Where's your mind? Where's your focus? Where's your eyes? Are they just on the things that are horizontal? CNN and Fox News and this and that and all this, murder hornets and dust clouds and storms. And where's your, where's your gaze? Our gaze should be on the ascent upward where we're, where we're going, our, to looking forward, looking upward to Christ, where Christ is seated. That's where the apostle Paul is talking about. The gaze of the Christian isn't just merely on the things that are horizontal, but the gaze of the believer, the gaze of the person of faith is we're looking upward. We're looking at Christ, where Christ is seated, where everything is occurring under his reign and under his rule and under his sovereignty. We're to be reminded of that. We've looked at the what, we've looked at the where, we've looked at the when, let's look at the why. Why has God built this? Why has God established this? Why has Solomon obediently followed? Well, certainly it's for that main reason of it's a place for God to dwell with his people. I mean, that's the picture. God is dwelling among his people. Now, his people aren't necessarily dwelling among God because we're sinful. We're separated. Like only the high priest and the high priest had to go through all the rituals in order to be cleansed. If he wasn't, as he walked in, he'd be struck dead. But it's still a picture that God dwells among his, among his people. That's throughout the Bible. This isn't something new. We've looked at that time and time and time again. God has shown up to Noah and made covenant with Noah. God has shown up to Abraham, made covenant to Abraham, shown up to Jacob. All throughout the Bible, we see God show up. We get into Exodus. Exodus opens up with a man by the name of Moses. Moses is minding his business in a field. He sees a bush on fire. He goes over and who is it? It's God in the midst of the bush. It's God who shows up when his people are enslaved. God shows up in his might and power through plagues that he puts on on Egypt. He shows up in might and power through the judgment of the Passover brought. He shows up in might and power as he divides the Red Sea. Shows up in might and power as he leads his people by a cloud and by fire. Shows up in might and power on and dwells among his people on Mount Sinai. As Moses goes up the mountain and meets with God and God meets and there's thunder and lightning and all of those things occurring and God gives Moses the law for his people. He gives them the ark and he gives them the tabernacle. All of these times and all of these places, we see a God who is in the phrase of life with us, who longs to dwell with his people. That's the storyline of the Bible. Your sin separates you from God. You gotta do something with your sin. Jesus comes as that perfect substitutionary sacrifice to take away the sins of the world, to take away the sins of anyone who would place faith and belief in Christ so that you may be reconciled with God. Paul says we've been given as Christians the ministry of reconciliation. What is that? It means you've been reconciled to God. You've been reconciled to one another. That's why when Jesus dies on the cross, that same veil, well, not the same veil, but a later veil, the same one symbolically that was between the holy place and the most holy place, it's ripped from the top to the bottom. What is God declaring? So that you could be made right with God. That's what he's saying. So it's God is dwelling among his people. That's why he's building it. It's a declaration of that. It's a symbol of that, but it's also to be a place of prayer. We see that even throughout when Jesus, we see that in Solomon and his dedication. We see that in the life of Jesus as well. 
that it's dedicated as a place of prayer. You even see what Solomon says, that if you look in the direction of the, of the holy city, in the direction of the temple, then look at verse 29. Whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by any man or by all your people Israel, each knowing his own affliction and his own sorrow and stretching out his hands toward this house, then hear from heaven your absolute dwelling place, your dwelling place, and forgive and render to those whose hearts you know according to all of his ways for you and you only know the hearts of the children of mankind, that they may fear you and walk in your ways all the days they live in the land that you gave to our fathers. That whenever he tells them to look toward the temple, look toward Jerusalem. He's not just giving them some formula. He's not giving them some magical incantation, but what he's doing is highlighting an act of faith. That we are to, to look outside of yourself, to look toward where God tells you to look as you pray. And remember the, the symbol of the, of the temple? It was a place where God has set his name. Now that's important for the, uh, those of us who are New Testament believers, because how are we to pray? We're to pray how? We're to pray in the name of Jesus. Like as we pray, we pray, we say, Lord, we pray in the name of Jesus. Like that's not just a, a way to end our prayers. That's not how we tend for the Lord, but it means more than that. It's, it's, it's us declaring our faith. It's us looking to Jesus. We're looking outside of ourselves. We're calling upon the grace of God and the name of God for the forgiveness that God can give, for the power that God has promised, for the protection that God gives, for the provision that God has answered. Those are all good prayers. Same we see throughout Solomon's dedication as these people, as your people, as they, they pray. They're not asking for new cars, right? They're not asking for more money unless they, unless you, unless you, need a car, then it's okay to ask for a car. Unless you absolutely need money, then it's okay. Again, it's a God who provides, but you're asking for these things and you're believing and you're trusting and you're praying in the name of Jesus. You're looking outside of yourself and to Christ. It's a place of prayer. It's a place of worship. It's a place where sacrifices will be made and offerings will be offered. It's a place to invoke a sense of awe and beauty. Again, think about the the the, the, the bling in this place, the, the gold and the bronze and all of those things as it would glisten in the, in the sunlight, especially on days when the smog wasn't that bad. And it would be just absolutely beautiful as you entered in, as you saw it. But not only is there a sense of awe and a sense of beauty, but there would also be a sense of, a sense of fear. I mean, could you imagine standing there on this day, the day that it was dedicated, and after Solomon prays that prayer, the fire falls from heaven and consumes the, the burnt offering? The, 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 the Shekinah, that's what it's called. In the, Bible. The, the, the manifest presence of God is so strong in the place that priests can't even enter in. Could you imagine what would fill your heart? That's what worship is. A sense of a mingling of, of awe and delight even, right? There should be a sense of delight in worship. We're delighting in the Lord and delighting in the promises of God, delighting in Jesus, delighting in who he is. We're, there's a sense of delight in those sayings, but there's a sense of awe. And then there's also a sense of fear. I guess all of that could fall under fear, but I'm talking about a sense of trembling that happens, like Isaiah felt, like the high priest must have felt. That's what true worship is. It's a, it's a place God's presence isn't to be taken, taken lightly. It's a fearful place. Number three, it's a place that advances God's mission. Maybe you never thought of that. 
Verse 32, likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel, when he comes from a far country for the sake of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm, when he comes and prays toward this house, hear from heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do, as do your people Israel that they may know that this, that this house that I have built is called by your name. The temple represented what God wanted to do in every nation, all over this entire earth, what he wanted to do from the very beginning. He wanted his glory to spread from Eden to the ends of the earth. He wanted his knowledge to, be, to, to, to fill the earth. As, as Habakkuk will write, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord's glory as the waters covered the sea. That's what he wanted. He wanted his, his name and his fame to spread out, not only to Israel, but among the nations. That the temple can be a place where a foreigner, those separated from Israel, those people where they could come and they could hear and they could know, they could come to know the God of Israel and the God of this world. Now let's think about gospel connections. Let's think about 2 Corinthians chapter six, but let's see it in light of the, the full revelation of God and all that God is doing in the, in the text, Paul will say this, it will apply even to this, that Solomon's building was not ever meant to be permanent. When it gets destroyed in 586, 587 by the Babylonians, that will not be a surprise when Herod builds it again. It gets destroyed again by the Romans. That will not be a surprise. And here's why. It was a shadow. It is a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. It is Christ. The house of the Lord built by Solomon, it points us to Christ. That Jesus is the true temple of the Lord. That Jesus came, as John will write, and the word became flesh and it dwelt among us. That dwelt among us, it means just the same thing. It dwells among us. It, it tabernacled. He was tabernacled. He's manifested himself among us. Jesus, near the end of his death, speaking of his own body, he says, you destroy this temple. You destroy this temple. And in three days, I will build it again. Jesus, they, they, they're, they're marvel at that. They don't understand it. They go, wait a minute. It took Herod years and years and years to build this temple and you're gonna build it in three days. You've lost your mind. No, what Jesus is saying is, this is a bunch of pile of rocks the true temple of God, you're looking at him and you're about to destroy him. It is myself, Jesus. That Jesus is the greater son of David. God's promises in Jesus, God's promises become visible. They could become tangible. They're solid reality of God's manifest presence among his people. Yes, it is veiled in the flesh, but remember the name that is given to Jesus and he shall bear the name Emmanuel which is God with us. And he is that. And because Jesus is, because he is God manifesting himself in the flesh and because of his death, because they try to destroy that temple, Jesus builds up a new temple by his resurrection. And Jesus is still building that temple. The new temple that is here on this earth is you believer. Every believer in Jesus, you need to understand that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Paul declares that in 1 Corinthians and again in 2 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 6 and 2 Corinthians 6, as well as we see it in the books of Ephesians and we see it throughout, that what we see happening in Solomon's temple being built has nothing to do with this building. It has nothing to do with a church 
buildings today, that that error keeps creeping into Christian thinking time and time and time again. This is not the house of the Lord. If you are a believer in Christ, you are the house of the Lord. His spirit doesn't dwell in here, but his spirit does dwell in you if you are a believer. Now, every family, which is what we are, the family of God needs a house and this is a fantastic house for us to use and to have, but there's nothing special here. God is building his temple, but he's not building it out of bricks or out of plaster and mortar and out of concrete and out of steel. He's not building it out of hewn logs or, or I mean, hewn stones or covered over in cedar and covered over in gold. He's not building his temple. God is building his temple today, but what is he building it? He's building it out of living stones, out of men and women, out of people, out of souls. Paul declares in Ephesians 2, 20 through 22, that this temple that he's building, it's laid upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus himself is the chief cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That your house is the Holy Spirit of God. That is true, that two truths that you need to know as a believer that are foundational to your freedom, they're foundational to who you are, they're foundational to who God is. These two truths you need to know. The first one is this, that you are in Christ. You are in Christ. That everything that Christ has accomplished by his perfect life and his substitutionary death, it's yours. Your forgiveness is Christ's forgiveness. Your moral perfection is Christ's moral perfection. Your um, unity with the Father is Christ's unity. Your, commute, your fellowship with the Father is Christ. That's why Paul writes, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You need to know that positionally. You are in Christ, that is so true. And you also need to know this, that Christ is in you. Christ is in you. Paul says this in Philippians 2, work out your own salvation. How are you to work it out, Paul? He says it like this, you're to work it out with fear and trembling. That's the posture of worship. That's the posture of knowing that the glory of God is in your midst. How do they, how do they react on the day of the dedication? They reacted with fear and trembling. How do they react when God's manifest presence came down on Mount Sinai with fear and trembling? And how are you to act at the truth that the Holy Spirit of God is residing in you with fear and with trembling? That's a good thing. And why are we to do this? He says, for it is God who's working. Where is he working? He's working in you, dear believer both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You are the holy tabernacle, the holy people of God, the temple of God, if you are a believer and God is at work in you, cleaning you, working in you. In light of that, then may you be a, a person of prayer. Just like the temple on the day of dedication, what we saw about it, we saw that it was a place of prayer. Now may you be, because you are the temple of God, may you be a person of prayer. May you declare your dependence upon God. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And the way that you do that is to pray. Pray, may you be a person of prayer. May you be a person of worship. A person whose gaze is fixed upward. A person who sacrifices and serves for the spread of the fame of Christ a person with that posture who's standing in fear and trembling at all and in delight at the beauty and the magnificence of Jesus 
And may that truth shape who you li- how you live. And may you be a person on mission. May you be a disciple who lives to make disciples. Your faith, just like Israel's faith, does not exist for you alone, but for the nations. And may you share your faith. The temple, Solomon's temple, it gives us a snapshot of the end of the story. It points us forward. Revelation closes out. Revelation 21 verses one through five close out like this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, the new Zion was coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. That's what makes heaven so beautiful. The dwelling place of God is with man, that he will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Let us pray. Jesus, as we think about the the glory and the beauty and the awe and the splendor of the first temple that was built, It pales in comparison to the beauty and the glory and the awe of you first and foremost and the beauty and the awe and the glory of the the new city. May our gaze be fixed. May we be like the pilgrims who are ascending and climbing upward as we think about that new city coming down to meet us. Oh Lord, we long for that. No doubt we feel the brokenness of this world and we long, we join in with the church As she has said for centuries, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. But until then, until then, Jesus, you said that you would build your church and the gates of hell will not prevail against her. You're building a church. You're building a temple, a place for you to dwell, a place for you to work, a place for which your name would be known, a place for your glory to be radiated out from us. And you're using fickle men and women like us. May we revel in your power. May we be cooperative with you. Build your church, Jesus, for your glory. May we exist as a people of prayer and as a place of worship and a place of mission. For your fame, we pray that in your name. Amen.